0: Good morning. morning. Take out your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 10. Choir, thank you for leading us and singing for us. It's going to be very appropriate to what we're about to look at. We're going to tackle all of Genesis 10 this morning. We are finally finished with the flood. No more Noah. We're leaving him. He was the new Adam in God's new creation. He let us down. He's just like the first Adam. He's just like us. He's a sinner. Thus, he's not the one that we're waiting for. Remember, Genesis 3 is sin. Romans 5 tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man, death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there's an intimate connection between death and sin. Death exists because sin exists. Therefore, for the one that we've been looking for, the one promised in Genesis three fifteen, the one promised to come and deal with Satan and to deal with our death problem, he himself cannot be a sinner. So Noah's not the one. Next, maybe it's Abraham. That's where we're headed. Chapters ten and eleven serve as the bridge between Noah and Abraham, and chapters ten and eleven serve as the conclusion of the first section of Genesis, thus the conclusion of the first section of the whole Bible. Starting in chapter 12, with Abraham, the whole rest of the Old Testament, 918 of the 929 chapters, focus on one nation. It focuses on Israel. So we need to be asking ourselves, why this super broad focus here on all nations before we're about to start focusing only on one nation? That contrast is important. Chapter 10 is often referred to as the table of nations. And there's a whole lot of them. There's a whole lot of names in this chapter. Last week, our passage had five names. Therefore, our sermon had five points. This week, our passage has 70 names. So, 70 points. It's a joke. not going to do it. I tried that joke on Wednesday and it didn't work. And I said, I'm going to try it again. And it still didn't work. Not a very good joke. So, I'm going to scratch that one. From the record. Um, But obviously, with 70 names, we're going to have to paint with some broad strokes here. We don't have time to go through this verse by verse like we would with most passages. This is a unique text, so we're going to have to tackle it a bit differently than we normally would. Can't go name by name, but there are a couple of important general truths that we can draw from this text. But let's just be honest up front this is not an easy chapter. To preach on one of my commentaries and one of the commentators says this. He says it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. I, and I understand the sentiment, but man, I disagree strongly with it because we're going to stick to our conviction that Second Timothy 316 is true when it asserts that all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable. Genesis 10 is scripture. It is inspired by God. Therefore, this chapter 2 is profitable for us. We just may have to look at it, look a little bit harder um, than some of these other texts. So, though some of the details may be obscure, the big picture, the structure of the passage is clear and simple. Look quickly at the first verse and the last verse. Notice once again, the sandwiching effect of verse one and verse 32, right? This is surrounding and explaining our text. This is another inclusio. This is what we looked at last time. These are the generations of Noah, verse one. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, 32. So it's telling us what this passage is about. And the last line of the whole thing makes it abundantly clear. From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So chapter 10, before everything gets divided in chapter 11, before we narrow down and focus on one people in chapter 12, this chapter is driving home the critical point of the great unity of all peoples. Chapter 10 is unpacking for us chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. This is like an exposition of those verses. Verse 1 is our title. Summary statement, verses 2 through 5. Unpack for us nine We're going to get the line of Japheth. Verses 6 through 20. Unpack for us verse 25, giving us the line of Ham. Then verses 21 through 30. Unpack for us verse 26, giving us the line of Shem. And then there's the concluding summarizing statement at the end. So it's not as complicated as it. Looks, We could just break it down according to Japheth, Ham, and Shem. But I want to look at a couple of big themes. This chapter is all about the nations. So we want that to be our theme. We want to see what we can learn about God's dealing and relationship with all nations. And to do that, we need to read chapter 10 in light of what we're going to read next time in chapter 11. It's kind of confusing. These are not in chronological order. This is theological order. By putting chapter 10 first, the emphasis is first on the unity of all peoples. This is focusing on all nations as a result of God's blessing in 9-7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. But that's not the whole story. That's why we'll have to come back next week and then look at all of this again through the lens of 11, 1 through 9 in the Tower of Babel, where the emphasis is now going to be on the great diversity of all peoples and the great division of all peoples as a result of God's judgment. So we'll wrap up the first part of Genesis with a sort of two-part series— This this week, more on the unity of all nations. Next week, we'll focus more on the division of all nations. We've got four general truths that we're going to pull out of this text this morning. It's there in your bulletin. We're going to look first at God's sovereignty over all nations. Then we're going to look at the unity of all nations. Then the rebellion of all nations. And we'll close by looking at our desperate need for the gospel for all nations. So let's... Let's read the text. And yes, I'm actually going to read the text. I'm gonna read the whole thing. It'll be fun. I've been practicing. You can see how many of the names that I mess up. That's pass, fail. So if I get 36 right, I'm good. Um, But this is God's word, so we're gonna read God's word and we're gonna see what God um, can do with this. So Genesis chapter 10, I'm gonna read for you, verses one through 32. This is God's word for you today. Pray for me. These are the generations of the sons of Noah Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth, and Togermah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rehama, and Sabtica. The sons of Rehama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalma in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Calah, and Resen between Nineveh and Calah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anaman, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, Kaslahim from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Laisha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. Arpakshid fathered Sheila, and Sheila fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Haderam, Uzzel, Dikla, Obel, Abamael, Sheba. Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha and the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth and after the flood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you even for this word. Help us to understand genealogies. Help us to understand their goodness. Help us to understand why you have reserved this for us so that we could look at this and read this and hear from your word today. Father, I need you. Father, I am dependent completely upon you. Apart from you, we can accomplish nothing. So we ask for your spirit to come and to work through your word. Father, teach us, show us Christ, and give us a great love for him through the preaching of your word. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, we made it. I it was like 68 out of 70. That was pretty good. Um, I messed up an and, so I don't know why that happened. But it's a lot of names. And that's the point. If you count all the names, you're going to actually get 71 Names, but most scholars agree that Nimrod doesn't count, and they make a long case why that is. We don't have time to get into. But if you pull out Nimrod, because you're going to see that he's kind of the center focus, that gives us 70 names, and that's an important symbolic number. Both seven and ten are were thought to be numbers of completeness. So 70, 7 times 10, is a very complete and comprehensive number. The point is not necessarily that this was every single people group in existence. This is a representative list, representative of all nations. So we have before us a highly stylized and symbolic account of Israel's known world. We have 14 names for Japheth, 30 for Ham, 26 for Shem, giving us that 70. So keep in mind that number in two or three years when we actually get to the end of the second part of Genesis. Because this, the end of the first part, ends with 70 nations. That, the end of the second part, ends with 70 people. In, uh, 46 46:27, when we see all the persons of the house of jacob who came into egypt were 70 that's not accidental that, that's on purpose all nations are represented by 70 one nation israel is there represented by 70 again israel is representing all the nations israel is going to be the vehicle of blessing to all of these nations and we'll come to that but as you look over this list Notice the names and the kinds of names that we have. It's it's quite a mix. Some are names of individual persons, some are names of people groups, some are actually names of places. So again, even this really comprehensive list of 70 names is not trying to give you every single detail, it's trying to give you the big picture, and it's trying to tie all of these names and nations together. And it does that first by revealing to us the sovereignty of God over all these nations. This whole chapter is a very clear testimony to the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. We've seen that many of the ancient nations around Israel had all kinds of creation stories and and myths, and there was some overlap with some of these first chapters in Genesis. There's some sort of account of the gods creating the world. Usually it's through war, like one god gets ripped in half and his body becomes the land and his other body becomes the sky, and then the gods are tired of doing work, so they create people to do the work for them, right? There's all kinds of these stories about creation and origins. There's some sort of flood account in many of these stories as well, but in all All the other nations, in all the rest of ancient literature, there is nothing like Genesis chapter 10. There are no parallels to this anywhere else. This is utterly unique. No one else has a sort of table of nations like this. Their concern was always only with their one nation. Only the Hebrew scriptures contain something like this that conveys God's concern for all nations. And again, not just the fact that he's mildly concerned with all the nations, but that he is sovereign over all the nations, not just Israel. So in taking these names and tracing them back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, tracing them back to Noah, and then jumping back to chapter 5 and tracing Noah all the way back up the line to Adam, and then tracing Adam back to his creation by the very hands and breath of God in chapters 1 and 2 serves to root all of these nations in that original creative act. It serves to connect all of these nations Back to God himself. He is the king of creation. He is the king of all the nations. And that's what we mean by sovereignty. That's why the choir just saying you are on your throne. That's sovereignty. I know I talk about it a lot, but that's on purpose. That's because sovereignty is Everything. We can't spend a ton of our time here this morning, but let's quickly just define it to make sure we're on the same page. Right? As the choir just sang, sovereignty is a function of kings. Remember, you can make the case that Genesis 1 is God, the king, creating his kingdom. So, to say that God is sovereign over all nations is to say that God rules over all nations. By God's sovereignty, we simply mean that he rules and reigns. Not reigns as in the flood, like R-A-I-N-S, but that reign is a function of this reign, his R-E-I-G-N reign. God rules. That's sovereignty. And this idea is basic and foundational to everything else. It's all over the scriptures. We could spend ages just studying this. God's the king. He's the Lord. And he exercises his dominion over his creation, and that dominion is absolute and total. There's a couple of classic passages: Daniel four. 34 and 35 is is a good example of this. It says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's sovereignty. Notice that there's kingdom language there in Daniel 4. There's dominion language and it's an everlasting dominion. It says he does according to his will, not our will, meaning he does what he wants. No one can stop him. No one it says can even question him. That's absolute sovereignty. Ephesians 1:11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That all things includes all nations. All things that happen, happen because he willed it to happen. That's absolute sovereignty. Proverbs 16.33 is this obscure, random little verse that says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The casting of a lot is basically today like the rolling of the dice. Why does scripture use that example? Because it's the most seemingly random chance occurrence possible. And so the point is that the smallest, most random, and chance thing, even that, is determined by God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon used to talk about waking up in the morning and seeing the dust motes in the air. Right, You're breathing that stuff. It's everywhere. You're breathing it constantly. You see it in the sun. He's like, every mote and molecule of that dust is ordered and ordained and sustained by God. That's sovereignty. He's the king. Isaiah 46, 9. Last one. I am God. That's sovereignty. And there is no other. I am God. And there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Sovereignty. God declares the end. From the beginning, he will accomplish his purposes because he's the king, because he has dominion, and he rules and he reigns absolutely. And that includes these nations. These nations receive their time. They receive their place according to God. Deuteronomy thirty-two eight says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the the peoples. So all this arrangement and time instruction, and and where they end up, all that is fixed and ordained by God. Paul says the same thing in Acts 17, 26, and God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwellings. So, where the nations are, when the nations are, their rise, their fall, they're coming into existence, they're leaving existence. According to Scripture, that is all ordained by God. That's power. God is in so control, is such in control, that He determines all of these things of the great kingdoms and nations of history itself. History is His to do with it what He wants. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. He doesn't need our permission. He acts. He rules. He's the king over all the nations. And listen, you need this. You need this God. Were I a betting man, I would wager that many of your struggles boil down to this. And it's that your God is too small. Right. You've bought in to the lie so pervasive out there, even among the churches, that God cannot be absolutely sovereign in the way that Scripture says that he is. That God is limited by you or by your free will or something of that nature. No. Right. Any guy that can be limited and constrained by me in any way is not a God that is worth your time. Right. You need The sovereignty of God. You need the God who has all authority and all ability to do what he wants when he wants. If he is not sovereign in this way, then all of those wonderful promises that you need to be able to bank on and depend on, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, um, that God is working all things together for your good. If God is not sovereign in this way, then you have no guarantee that he can actually do those things. If God is not absolutely sovereign, you can have no assurance and no security. But if he is, as he is described in the Bible, both absolutely sovereign and absolutely good, then you can absolutely rely on him and be absolutely sure that he will do all of the wonderfully good things that he has promised his people. You need a big, sovereign God to face all the uncertainties and all of the insecurities that are going to plague your life and that plague my life. We desperately need a God who is sovereign. And for our purposes right now, we're seeing that he is specifically sovereign over all nations. So, As we're about to turn the page and focus on God as the God of Israel, we cannot forget this point. As the only God, he is also the God of Israel of all the nations. And that's why this chapter is here. The Old Testament consistently portrays God as a universal God who rules the affairs of all the nations, even the ones who do not know him, who reject him, who worship those that are not gods. And that's the exact reason he chooses Israel. That's why he's about to narrow in and focus on the one nation, because it's through that one nation that he's going to bless all the nations, because he is sovereign over all. Of them. God's sovereignty over the nations. Right, what else do we learn about all these nations? Point number two the unity of all nations. We mentioned it briefly at the beginning, but this is the main point. You get all these names, and it's easy to get lost in the weeds, it's easy to miss the big picture of what all this is really about. And again, thankfully, Moses has helped us. This is good writing. He has told us in verse 1 and verse 32 what it's about. From these men, from Noah, all the nations spread abroad on the earth. So again, he's very intentionally connecting all of these different nations back to the same source. You could pull up a map and just Google Genesis 10. You can find a map of all these names. And if you were to look at it, you'll see that all of them are oriented around this little piece of land at the end of the eastern uh, edge of the Mediterranean that we call Israel. You'll see the people of Japheth in verses 2 through 5. They will spread north. And then they will spread over into Europe, and then they will spread over into Asia. You'll see the people of Ham from verses 6 through 20. They'll settle into that land, into the land that will one day be Israel, but that at this time is called Canaan. And then you'll see them into North Africa and on down into the rest of Africa. And you'll see the people of Shem from 21 through 31 spread throughout the Middle East. East. So many different peoples settled in so many different places, eventually speaking so many different languages, so much diversity, but the diversity is not the point. The point is the unity. All of this comes from this. All of these diverse and different peoples are ultimately united to this one people, mankind. We all come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who all come from Noah, who ultimately comes from Adam, who comes from God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. So the harmony and the unity of the nations is not in sameness of language or geography or culture or skin tone, but it's found only in the innate dignity that all of us have by nature of being made in the image of God and living under the blessing of God. That's our unity. He is our unity. Our creation in him and like him is our unity. You seriously, think about this. If all this is true, if Genesis 1 is true, and there really is a God who is like the God that we've just met in our last point, a God who is both absolutely sovereign and absolutely good, a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, holy, glorious, good, if that God exists, and if he creates everything, and then he creates us, and he creates us like him, Why in the world would we ever want to identify ourselves with anything else and in any other way? We are like God. Uh, We are created in his image. I don't try and identify myself with all the weak and terrible things about me. I don't highlight and announce the fact that I'm doubtful and fearful and cynical and angry and lacking confidence, afraid that one day someone will find me out and realize that I'm a fraud. I don't want, to, I don't want people to know that. I don't want to identify myself with these things. Maybe they're true at some times, but I don't highlight that as my identity. What do I do? I highlight the good things about me. Husband of Melissa, father of four wonderful little girls, a pastor, reader, New Yorker, Tar Heel. You see, we take the things that we think are good and we identify ourselves with those good things. But the best possible thing is that we are created in God's image. Like that's an identity. That's what we sing in this new song that I love, right? Our worth is not in all these things in what we owe, and fame, own, or fame, or beauty, or health, or, or wealth, or any of these things. You can't find an identity there. It will let you down. Here's an identity. That's the one good thing that you need to find the identity that will give you the meaning and the fulfillment and the purpose and the value that you're so desperate for. Our unity, and especially one another, our unity together as a church in Christ, will get to that. But also our unity with everyone else, with all nations, is rooted in this fact that we are ultimately one nation, one people, one race. That's what this chapter wants us to do to understand. Remember, there's nothing like this in the rest of the other ancient literatures. Uh, there's no other table of nations. A lot of them have an origin story that there's the God and he creates the one special people first and only then later he'll create some other nations and those stories serve the purpose of emphasizing that one people over all of these other peoples. These stories existed to separate and to divide and the purpose of separating and dividing is also to elevate one and to devalue the others, to empower the one group and to oppress the other Groups, But our text is trying to do the exact opposite. This is starting with the many, with the all, to emphasize the unity of all. And if there is unity, and if we all have our origin here, if this is our identity, then that establishes our equality. And that equality depends upon this oneness and this unity. And man, isn't that a message that we desperately need to hear these Days, our culture is so obsessed not with unity but with division right it's all about separating and dividing and identifying with the things that set us apart from others one day I'm going to do a talk on intersectionality and we're going to explain what intersectionality is if you don't know that word you're not missing anything but it's a big word I mean we need to talk about it at some point but it's all about this division and finding our identity in those divisions now I'm going to say something wrong so let's just say that ahead of time. I'm going to offend somebody. That's not my goal, um, but just so give me pre-forgiveness. Uh, we live, and I think we can all agree on this, in an increasingly race-obsessed society. And we're divided more than ever. Right? So things might be related. Now, I know I'm not supposed to talk about race. I'm the definition of a wasp. right? You know what a wasp is, right? a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I'm a wasp. That's that's what I am. And not only that, um, but I'm middle class, and I'm from the South, right? So I'm supposed to have no authority to speak on this topic, and I don't. But as a pastor, I don't have any authority to speak on anything, right? The Word is our only authority, right? So I'm supposed to only speak where the Word speaks, and everyone I listened to, every commentator I read said that this passage is all about race, or actually, how wrong we get the very idea of race. I'm just going to quote other guys, so if you're offended, it's them. I'm just going to quote what they say, so be offended at them. One of my favorite pastors, uh, Vodi Bakum, uh, I listened to his sermon on this passage, and he made the whole thing about this one point. Uh, Vodi is a pastor, but he's also the dean of a seminary over in Zambia, and he's fantastic. Go listen to all of his. The title of his message on Genesis 10 is, Are There Many Races or One? And Bodhi says this at the beginning and then talks about it the whole message. He says, there is only one race. There has always been one race. There will always be one race. All descended from Noah, who was descended from Adam. There is but one race. that's voting. Then Thabiti, Anyabwile, another pastor down in D.C. I just used his book a ton for the training of elders and deacons. It's great. Thabiti writes this. He says, our entire outlook on the world is so misplaced and wrongheaded and inadequate that we need to either change it or commit ourselves to the closest mental health facility. The problem is this. Most of us operate with some working idea of race that is foundational in our worldview, but believing in race is like believing in unicorns because neither race nor unicorns exist in reality. He goes on to make a joke about how he doesn't believe in interracial marriage because he doesn't want his sons and daughters marrying animals. It's it's a joke, right? It's a dumb joke because that's another race. He absolutely believes in different people marrying together. He tries to make a joke. Apparently not very funny. Um, But this is the point that these guys are making. And this is the point that this text is making. I, I don't have time to get into it. I pulled up the science of the study in a book. A scientist says the same thing. There is no such thing as biological races among humans. And everyone, excepting modern scientific techniques and logic, agrees on this scientific Fact. So, again, we have science and theology agreeing on this. The idea of race as some physical thing, race as determined by something essentially biologically different about us, is a myth. Right? Genetically, we are all 99.8 something percent identical. And this idea doesn't come from science, and it doesn't come from scripture. It's actually just a social construct that is rooted in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Why? Why did, this de- why did this idea develop? Well, because white European nations are beginning to subject black African peoples to slavery. They realize, hey, that's probably morally questionable. So they created this whole idea using Genesis 10 creating something called the curse of Ham, which we looked at last week as not being a thing, and then making up this non-existent prior to that idea of race to convince themselves that some races were naturally and biologically inferior to their superior white race. Therefore, it's not wrong for us to enslave these inferior people. That is the the origin and genesis of the idea of race. Racist white people from the 16th and 17th century. This is why we need Genesis 10, rightly understood. Our text is very clear, and there's one thing that everyone agrees on about this text, and that it is primarily about the unity of all nations as the one race of humanity descended from Noah, from Adam, made by God in his image and likeness. And if we're all unified in that, there can be no superiority or inferiority. There can be no biological, I'm better or you're worse. We can't create some social construct and try to use that to oppress others or keep other people down because we are all one in Adam. I love the, the Chronicles of Narnia and the C.S. Lewis series because they're dealing with all these animals, all these other races. And so what are people called? Oh, they're the sons and the daughters of Adam. And that, that's their identity. Aslan calls him son of Adam. I, I love that. We should work that in somehow into how we speak. This is Acts 17:26. Again, God made from one man, every nation of mankind. And so then Thabiti goes on and says that Genesis 10 and our unity in Adam demands complete abandonment of the idea of race as biological distinctiveness. And he goes on to make a case that our identity problems begin with this adoption of this false and unbiblical theory of racial distinctiveness rooted in some sort of of biology because it's not true and it's not helpful because all it does, as we're seeing in our culture today, is it furthers the divide. Maybe, maybe we're doing something wrong because it seems that the more we focus on it, the worse that it's getting. You know, again, I should probably stop. I'd like to pull a Bodhi and just talk about this for the whole sermon, but um, I'm gonna, I've already put my foot in my mouth probably, so I'm gonna stop before I continue to do it. But the main point of the text is clear and it can't be debated. Everybody comes from one person. All nations come from one God and that unity is found there. This text is emphasizing not what divides us, but what unites us. Unity is good, but unity can also be bad. Yes, we are all of us united in our identity, but sadly, we are also all of us united in our activity. Point number three, because the unity of all nations ends up resulting in the rebellion of all nations. I mean, this will be our focus next time, but let's look at it quickly. Two individual names, if you're paying attention, obviously stand out in the text. Nimrod Nimrod, and Peleg. I want to say Peleg, but the guy apparently that I listened to, I almost just played for you my Bible app to let him read it, but he says it's Peleg, so I'm going to trust him. And we see Nimrod in verse 8. And you know that you're supposed to pay attention to Nimrod because of the time that the text gives him. Almost all the names are just listed He's given five verses, which again means, pay attention to Nimrod. Plus, there's his name. Right? our point is the rebellion of all nations. Well, that's, most li- that's in part because the most likely meaning of the name Nimrod is we shall rebel. We think that's what his name means. And in a culture where name means everything, this is not a good sign. So, so who is Nimrod? There's books and books written about trying to figure out who this guy really was in history. Some people think he's the legendary hero Gilgamesh. Others say he was Hammurabi. Others say he was one of the great pharaohs. We simply don't know. All we know is that he was a mighty man. Again, intentionally connecting him to Genesis 6 and these mighty warriors, these tyrants of Genesis 6. And then it tells us that he was a mighty hunter. That's probably not a good thing. Uh, many people argue that this wasn't because he was a hunter of like rabbits or squirrels or something, but because he was a hunter of people, is what a lot of people think. And the fact that all of this was before the Lord isn't necessarily a good thing. This could be a neutral phrase, simply signifying how greatly his exploits uh, stood out, so big that it's even coming before the Lord, this guy is doing such, uh, accomplishing such things. Or it could be a negative phrase. We see something like this in Psalm 66, 7, where it's before the Lord. It's God's eyes that watch the wicked nations. And so we take that account with chapter 11 and God coming down to to see the nation's rebellion. This is best, I think, to take this as a negative thing. This is not positive in God's eyes. This is negative in God's eyes. Because look at what Nimrod does. He builds cities. And he builds them all across a very large area of the Middle East. Here is the first empire builder. He obviously has to do this by aggression and force. That mighty terminology almost exclusively refers to aggression and warfare. And notice especially the names of the cities that find their origin in Nimrod, especially two of them, Nineveh in Assyria, which will end up being Israel's greatest enemy, the ones who would destroy the kingdom of Israel in 722. And then Babylon, Judah's greatest enemy, the one who would destroy the kingdom of Judah in 586. Both of them trace their origin back here to Nimrod. And the explicit mention of Nimrod's connection to Babel in Shinar has to be read in light of chapter 11 and the great tower that is built on the plain of Shinar that is going to be called Babel. And that's what we're looking at next Week That will be the final judgment of the nations at the end of part one of the Bible. And it seems that it's all connected back here to Nimrod. His name is at the heart and center of chapter 10. His name, given the most attention in chapter 10, is a foreshadowing of what is about to happen in chapter 11. It seems that he leads the rebellion. We'll see it in great detail next time. But the story of all these nations is going to end on a note of sin and judgment. And this point is important, because when most all the talking heads from a secular background preach tolerance and fairness and equality, they are always preaching that from the assumption, the basic assumption of human nature that we are all of us equally good. But what we are really seeing here is that we are all of us equally bad. Yes, we're created in the image of God. Yes, we are united as one race in Adam and in Noah. But as we've seen with that first Adam and in the second Adam, Noah, both of them are great sinners. And what's the refrain that I keep repeating? Sin separates. That's what's about to happen. Sin is a rebellion against God. The nations are about to rebel, and that rebellion, that sin, is going to lead to their separation from God vertically and their separation from one another horizontally. And so these last two points serve as a bit of tension. Don't try and resolve the tension, feel the tension. The human race is both wonderfully united and hopelessly divided. Yes, we're united. But in sin, in chapter 11, that unity leads to a dangerous unity in rebellion against God. Now, we'll look at that in more detail next time. But as we saw last week, the flood didn't fix sin. Now, the point of the flood was not to wash away sin. So basically, the first thing that happens is, After the flood is another fall, another manifestation of sin, just to make sure that we don't miss the fact that sin is still a problem. And as long as sin reigns, it's actually going to be diversity among the nations that is required to restrain and limit the wickedness that a unified sinful humanity could accomplish. Because of our sin, God has to divide us. Doesn't it then seem strange to so focus on and emphasize and celebrate that which divides us? When biblically, over and over again, that which is focused on and emphasized and celebrated is that which unites us. It is this their rebellion and the division that results from the rebellion that demands We have one more point, and it demands we get to that final point. The rebellion of all nations demands good news for all nations. That rebellion demands this gospel. If we are united in origin and image, but then divided in rebellion and sin, how can we ever be united again? How can the separation that results from sin ever be healed? There's only one answer. It's it's only by the gospel. Look quickly at Pelig. Pelig. I don't know. Here's the second name that stands out. Look at verse 25. For in his days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jockton. The name Pelig means division. What does it mean that the earth was Divided. Well, it's probably a reference to chapter 11, to Babel, where the people of the earth are literally divided by God. But notice something else. We're in the line of Shem now, or with Peleg, the, the chosen line, the, the line of the elect. And notice that Peleg is one of the two sons of Eber. Eber is where we think the name Hebrew comes from, which will obviously be the people of God, which will be Israel. Israel. And we've said that Abraham is going to be the father of Israel, of this nation. But look all over chapter 10. Trace it to the end of chapter 10. There's no Abraham. We don't get to Abraham. And thus Israel is not in the table of nations. Because it is here at Peleg that we have another division. We're tracing the seed of the woman. It's through the line of Seth, through Noah, through Shem, through Eber, but not through Jokton, only through Pelik. So the line of Shem, the chosen line, the elect line, is itself divided here into non-elect and elect. The rest of chapter 10 chases the non-elect line, and it's only in chapter 11, after Babel, that will pick back up at Pelig and trace his line all the way through to Abraham end of part 1 of Genesis end of part 1 of the Bible it's all about getting to Abraham why again because of the promise that God makes to Abraham in 12:3 in you Abraham all the families the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So part one ends with all nations in rebellion. Part two begins with one man representing one nation but it is for the express purpose of being a blessing to all of those nations in rebellion. The all nations that God is sovereign over. The all nations that are unified. The all nations that are in rebellion and thus the all nations that desperately need the gospel. And so God comes and he speaks to Abraham in chapter 12 and what is it exactly that God speaks to Abraham. Paul tells us, you can go look at Galatians 3 if you would like. Paul tells us exactly what it is that God is telling Abraham in Galatians 3.18. It says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the nations, that's Genesis 10, seeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached The gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you, all the nations shall be blessed. Scripture says that Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham is the gospel. The blessing to Abraham was always about the nations. They had rebelled. They were separated from God and from one another because of sin. Sin separates. And to be separated from God is to be condemned by God. It's to be be declared not right with God. And the only thing in the world that matters then is that you be right with God. And so the one question that matters is how can unholy man be right with holy God? And Paul tells us there in Galatians 3.18 that it is only through justification by faith. What does that mean? Galatians 2.16 gives us a little more info. A person is not justified by works of the law, meaning you can't do it. You cannot be right with God. You cannot be saved by being a good person. You cannot be justified by anything that you do. It's not justified by works of the law, but through faith, there's the means, in Jesus Christ. There's the answer. Why Jesus? Because he's Genesis 3.15. Because he is the one promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Because he is the one in Galatians 3.13 that became a curse for us by hanging on a tree. You see, the gospel that the nations need, the gospel that you need, is that though you are part of the rebellion, though you are separated from God, though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, God has done something amazing to deal with your sin and your death problem. He has sent his son Jesus to take the place of sinners. He has sent his son Jesus uh, to do all the things that we were supposed to do. We were supposed to live rightly in relationship with God. We didn't. Jesus came to live perfectly in right relationship with God for us. We were supposed to die because the wages of sin is death and all of us have sinned. Jesus came to die that death for us. Jesus takes my Place. Jesus takes my death and he gives me his life. What a gift, right? And I get that gift through the gift of faith, only through placing my hope and my trust completely in him. And that he is the only hope for the nations. Jesus is the gospel for all nations. Sin separates, but grace unites. Our culture is obsessed with separating, but it's our gospel that unites. If we all share an identity and a unity in being created in the image and likeness of God, how much more then do all of us who have been bought and redeemed by the blood of Christ, all of us who are in Christ, how much more then do we have a unity the likes of which the world cannot even comprehend. The world cannot understand this. The world cannot understand the church and our identity together, unified, very different, but unified in Christ. And so all of that leads Paul to boldly proclaim in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither therefore Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul takes the three things that most divide people, and he says those things, nothing, because you're in Christ Jesus. That's identity. That's unity. That's where you'll find hope and joy and meaning and fulfillment and worth in him. That's the good news, that we, the church, have For all the nations, there is nothing else like this. There is no other gospel. There is no other message. This is our task and this is our responsibility to proclaim that there is forgiveness and that there is life and that there is unity to be found together in our identity in Jesus Christ. The gospel, uh, the nations need Jesus Christ. He's the solution to the rebellion. He's our identity. So that's gotta be the thing that we preach and that we proclaim, and that we represent to this so divided world. We're the ones who are united in Jesus Christ. And that's what Genesis 10 is about. The great unity of the nations, which is broken in rebellion, but is being redeemed in Christ, as the nations here are being brought together in him. What a beautiful testimony to God's grace, that identity that we have in him. That's that be our message. Because that's the message of Genesis 10. Bow with me if you would. And let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that it would be your word. Uh, that is front and center. I pray that it would be your word. That is remembered. I pray that it be your word. That does its work in our hearts. By, by your spirit. Father, I pray that anything that I said. That was untrue or unhelpful. Would, would fade away and that your word um, would be central, the great truths that are contained in here about your relationship um, with all nations. I pray that we would delight in your great plan. I pray that we would delight in your great sovereignty and delight um, in the great redemption um, that you are bringing about among all the nations um, through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the picture of that that we are privileged to have here in our our small little corner of Woodside. Father, we pray that we would be a light uh, to this world. Father, I pray that we would be an image, your image, an image of you, that we would shine that light to the watching world and that they would see the unity and that they would see the love and that they would see that there was something different about this place that cannot be explained by us, that cannot be explained by me, but that can only be explained uh, by Jesus Christ. Father, unite us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would heal uh, the great division Um, in our world that so characterizes everything. And I pray that we would see the gospel as the great solution uh, to that that rift and, and to that division. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are sovereign and that you are working on our behalf. And Father, use your word now to do your work. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.